tonight at verse 6, which says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I'd like for us in the next few minutes to consider the first of the four names that we have for uh, the Lord Jesus Christ in this verse. That is the name Wonderful Counselor and the name Mighty God. And so first of all, let's consider this name Wonderful Counselor. If you're a parent, then you've had the experience and the privilege of giving a person a name and uh, the, the name that they would be called uh, for their whole life here on this earth and, and even, I guess, beyond of their days here on this earth. Did um, everyone find it easy to come up with just the right name? Was it always easy? <laughs> yeah, I've known people that agonized for nine months or whatever how many exact days it was from the time they were pregnant until uh, birth came over what to name a child. Did you and your spouse always readily agree on every name for your children? I've, known some, I've seen some interesting conversations over the years uh, between a husband and wife about what to name a child. Well, we usually give a lot of thought uh, into what names we will name our children. It seems that people in the Bible may have given even more careful attention to the names that they gave. There are all kinds of names uh, in the scriptures that have much meaning. Some of them are very symbolic, like the names of Joseph's children or the prophet Hosea's children. Their names were very specific. We actually have it here in the book of Isaiah. If you'll turn with me back to chapter 7, verse 3. It says, And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you, and, and I don't know exactly how you pronounce this, but Shear, Jashab, uh, which is his son, and, his, and this name means a remnant shall return. Now, it's, what is interesting about that is he's going to go to the uh, king and tell him that if you don't obey God, if you don't uh, follow the word of God, you're going to be destroyed, and this land is going to go into captivity. But the name of this child is a prophetic word, and the prophetic word is... You're going to go into captivity, but a remnant will return. Look over chapter 8 and verse 3. Isaiah has another son. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Now, this particular name means speed, something like this, speed the spoils, hasten the booty. He's getting ready to tell the king that his disobedience is going to accelerate, shorten the time before they're going to be destroyed and they're going to be plundered by their enemies. And his disobedience is going to make that happen faster. And that's what the, this child's name is. Speed the spoils, hasten the booty, or something like that would be the translation of his name. And so again, it's a prophetic name that this child has. In the scriptures, we have things like Abraham, which means father of a multitude, Jacob, which means trickster, Goliath, which means splendor, 
David means beloved. Peter means rock. All of these people proved true to their names. And so these names were, uh, are in a sense, prophetic names that they match the lives and characters of these people. In addition to regular names, there are names and titles of royalty. If I were to have Liz drop by, and by Liz I mean Elizabeth, Queen of England. And if I were to give her a proper, formal introduction, this is what I would say. Her Majesty, Elizabeth II, by the grace of God, of Great Britain and Ireland and the British dominions beyond the seas, Queen, Defender of the Faith, Duchess of Edinburgh, Countess of Marioneth, Baroness of Greenwich, Duke of Lancaster, Lord of Man, Duke of Normandy, Sovereign of the Most Honorable Order of the Garter, Sovereign of the Most Honorable Order of the Bath, Sovereign of the Most Ancient and Most Noble Order of the Thistle, Sovereign of the Most Illustrious Order of St. Patrick, Sovereign of the Most Distinguished Order of St. Michael and St. George, Sovereign of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, Sovereign of the Distinguished Service Order, Sovereign of the Imperial Service Order, Sovereign of the Most Exalted Order of the Star of India, Sovereign of the Most Eminent Order of the Indian Empire, Sovereign of the Order of, of British India, Sovereign of the Indian Order of Merit, Sovereign of the Order of Burma, Sovereign of the Royal Order of Victoria and Albert, Sovereign of the Royal Family Order of King Edward VII, Sovereign of the Order of Merit, Sovereign of the Order of the Companions of Honor, Sovereign of the Royal Victorian Order, Sovereign of the Most Venerable Order of the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem. And I, that's not all of them, but that's like, that's the hitting the high spots. And so, that's quite a name. It should not surprise us that God would have a very specific and appropriate name for His Christ a title that is fitting to his person and his offices. Isaiah 9, 6 says that his name, and the word there is singular, it is the word name, it does not say his names, plural. It says that his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is one long name or title. This is like a royal name or a throne name, a name given at a time of coronation. It speaks of the greatness of a person that they have multiple names and titles. You know, I have seen lists made of the names of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Bible, and those lists are over 200 names long, different names that are given to the Lord Jesus in the Bible. These names and titles speak of his greatness and of his character and of his nature. He, after all, has a name that is above all names. So let's consider this first name, this title, Wonderful Counselor. In the book of Judges, in chapter 13, there's a story of an angel of the Lord appearing to Manoah and his barren wife who promises them that a son would be born to them. And that son is going to be who? That's going to be uh, Samson. This is the mother and father of Samson. In Judges 13, verses 17 and 18, we read this. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, 
What is your name so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is, and then this is our word, seeing it is wonderful. Now the word that the angel of the Lord uses means that his name is too wonderful to be comprehended. The word that we have in our text and in our name, wonderful counselor, this word wonderful, it means to marvel at something. It means to be too hard to understand, to be extraordinary. It can refer to something that is impossible or too difficult to do. The angel of the Lord is saying that his name is too superb, too magnificent too incomprehensible to be understood. This is a strong indication about the deity of this angel. We know that the appearances of the angel of the Lord of the Lord in the Old Testament are most often uh, a pre-incarnation appearance of the Lord Jesus. Now we throw our English word wonderful around so casually that it doesn't really mean very much in, uh, when we say that something is wonderful. We use it all the time. It's almost a meaningless word. And because of this, the way we use our English word wonderful, we miss the weight and significance of this name. Because I think we read Isaiah and we read it the way we use the word wonderful. And it's not that way at all. Only God is wonderful. And in the Old Testament, this word only applies to him and his mighty deeds. Now, there's a number of verses that refer to, use this word wonder, referring to God in this way. I'm just going to give you one example. Exodus 15, 11, which says this. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing, then this is our word, wonders, doing wonders. Our God is the God who does Wonders, And when it says a wonder, it's something that only God can do because it is an impossible thing. It is something that is too difficult to do. It's something that others cannot ever do. It is a wonderful thing. So in the Old Testament, uh, this word wonderful only applies to God and his deeds. Isaiah's prophecy and revelation about Jesus is saying that something wonderful beyond words is about to happen. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.9, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And that is what is getting ready to happen with the coming of this child, this child that is born. It is going to be a wonderful thing, and he is going to do impossible things, things that are too difficult to do, things that no one else can do. The very first name used of this child who is born to us tells us that he is utterly different and set apart. There is nothing common or ordinary about Jesus and he is going to do the impossible and the incomprehensible things. Jesus is a true wonder, far beyond all the wonders of this world, ancient or modern. He surpasses human Categories. He surpasses human thought and human understanding and human power in every way. He is in his person, both God and man. And what could be more wonderful than that? 
Jesus is more excellent, greater than all the other works of God. Christ surpasses even the creation of the world. Nothing can compare to this wonderful one, this incomparable Christ. The grace of God revealed in Christ is greater than all the grace revealed in all the other miracles that God has brought into this world. He is more wonderful than the most wonderful thing that we could ever think of. Of course, the question here, as we consider this word, is, is he wonderful to me and is he wonderful to you? Now, he's not just wonderful, but Isaiah 28, 29 says that he is, using the same word, he is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. And so that brings us to our second word, the word counselor. The second part of this name, wonderful counselor. We know that the earthly son of David, King Solomon, was a man of incomparable wisdom, wiser than the wisest to ever live. And to be a good king, it requires unbelievable wisdom. But the son of David who forever will sit on the throne of David will be a person who is wise beyond all human comprehension. He will be a wonderful in his wisdom. Isaiah 11, 2 says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, speaking of this one. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That's a description of the Spirit that is going to rest on the Messiah that's going to be in him. Colossians 2, verses 2 and 3 says, Christ, in whom all in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In this child born to be king are the treasures of wisdom and understanding and knowledge and counsel. He has no need to surround himself with counselors or advisors. There is no cabinet or executive council in heaven to, uh, to tell our Lord Jesus Christ what he never what he needs to do. He never gathered his disciples together and asked, what do you think we should do? What do we need to do to handle this situation? That never happened with our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you, what does a good counselor do? If you're looking for a really good counselor, what traits or characteristics would you expect to find or would you hope to find? Let me give you a few. First, he identifies with the one in need. If we, have a, if we were to seek a counsel, we would want someone who could identify with our needs. And Jesus can do exactly that. He became one of us. Listen to uh, a few verses here. Hebrews two seventeen and 18. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And that he might make atonement for the sins of the, pe- of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4.15 We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Isaiah 53.3 He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and he was familiar with suffering. 
He knows us because He is like us. He is like us, but He is a counselor who has all wisdom and all experience. Second, He is always available and is always with us. If you, if you need a counselor, and it wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if we had a counselor who was always available at every moment, every time of need? Emmanuel means just that, that God is with us. And his promise is to be with us always, even to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 20, he tells us that he's going to be with us to the end of the age. Hebrews 13, 5, he says that he will never leave us or forsake us. Thirdly, he always makes an accurate diagnosis and prescribes the right remedy. He tells us the right advice. He tells us the truth. And his advice is always perfect. Psalm 19.7 says that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. If you want to be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, that's what Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 tells us that that should be our Christian heart, then this is the path and this is the prescription. It is, uh, it is to go to the Lord Jesus Christ and to seek Him in His Word. The Scriptures are the book of His wisdom. And this book and the Gospel it, pro it proclaims is the perfect wisdom of God and no one can ever be wiser than this. As we learned this morning, only here we can find light so that we can walk in the light. All that we need for salvation, for life, for our, the good of our physical life, the good of our spiritual life, for our strength, is contained here in the Word of God. Let me tell you another characteristic about this counselor. He has no ulterior motive. Christ, when He counsels, needs nothing from you. He's not in it for himself. He is in the purest, most complete way only involved in counseling us for our own good. He has no self-interest in that process. He is completely concerned with our needs. He only wants what is best for us. There is no conflict of interest ever between what would be good for him and right for him and what would be best for us, his people. You know what? The Lord Jesus has a good record as a counselor. Mary Magdalene was delivered from seven demons. The demoniac in Matthew chapter 8 was delivered from a violent spirit and he was turned to a, a normal person. The Samaritan woman who had been married and divorced five times and was currently living with a, with a man who was not her husband became a gospel witness in her community. The woman caught in the act of adultery was saved from death and sent on her way a changed person. 
Zacchaeus was a despised tax collector and after meeting with Jesus vowed to repay anyone he had cheated with interest. The religious leader Nicodemus became a Christian even though it was a dangerous thing for him to do so. He has changed the lives of countless people outside of the scriptures and he still is changing lives. Augustine, St. Augustine was a womanizer who ran with a wild crowd before becoming one of the greatest leaders in the history of Christ's church. John Newton's a classic example. He was a drunken slave trader before he became a pastor and wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. And we could go on and on. One last observation. This word counselor often refers to a war counselor. If he is a wonderful counselor of war, do you know what that means? It means that he has a plan and he knows how to win. That is this wonderful counselor. Are you glad for that? That the Lord Jesus Christ has a plan and he knows how to win. Let me make just a couple of applications. Charles Spurgeon says this. I'm quoting now. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ is a counselor in a threefold sense. First, he is God's counselor. He sits in the cabinet council of the King of Heaven. He has admittance into the privy chamber and is the counselor with God. In the second place, Christ is a counselor in the sense, in the sense uh, which the Septuagint translation appends to this term. Christ is said to be the angel of great counsel. He is a counselor in that he communicates to us on God's behalf what has been done in the great council before the foundation of the world. And thirdly, Christ is a counselor to us and with us because we can consult with him and he doth counsel and advise us as to the right way and the path of peace. What is God's counsel like? Romans 11 tells us, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and how inscrutable is his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Colossians 2, 2 and 3 that we already read. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. God's counsel is higher than ours. His thoughts are higher than ours. His ways are higher than ours. He is infinite and all-knowing, all-wise, knowing the beginning from the end. Just think about how wonderful that is. To have someone counsel you. Who knows how it's going to exactly how it's going to all uh, be in the end? What a wonderful counselor he is for his people. Let's look at our other name, Mighty God. Whatever we say about God through these four titles, I, I think you know this. We need to always understand that we are just scratching the surface of His infinite majesty. And I would suggest to you that's why heaven uh, is not going to be boring after millions and millions of years. God is infinite, and it will take an infinite amount of time to fathom the, the heights and the depths of this infinitely glorious and complex God. Now let's consider this name. He shall be called Mighty God. In Hebrew, this title is El Gabor. Gabor is G-I-B-B-O-R. Gabor means to prevail, to be mighty, to have strength, to be great or powerful. It's commonly used uh, as a term uh, associated with warfare and used of mighty men 
and great warriors. When Gabor is uh, combined with the word El, El Gabor, uh, it means mighty God or God of might. God uses this title to describe himself as a mighty warrior, strong to save and defend and protect his people. We could translate this term mighty God this way. We could call him our hero God. Have you ever noticed that um, that God has a flair for the dramatic? When he delivers the children of Israel uh, from bondage in Egypt, he doesn't just like usher them out and over to Israel. He parts the sea. He drowns the whole Egyptian army. He has all the people of Egypt give, uh, give the children of Israel as they're leaving all of their wealth, all of their gold and jewelry and things they give to God's people as they leave. They go out into the desert and they, and they're, they're at places where there's no water and, they, and they, they get water out of a rock in the middle of the desert. There's a pillar uh, of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. All these incredible things uh, our, our God uh, does things in a dramatic way. He is a great hero. He is a great warrior, and he, uh, on a scale from 1 to 10, the Exodus is like a 100 uh, in its drama and in its, uh, the wonder of it. Now, the title, Wonder Comps, uh, the, the title, Wonderful Counselor, may not be a surprise to people, especially if they do not know that the word wonderful can only uh, be properly assigned to God. And it was, we were going to the street somewhere, and we would tell them that, that one of the names of uh, the Christ is Wonderful Counselor. That probably wouldn't surprise people. But here the prophet directly and plainly attributes deity to this child. This is something that I suppose the man on the street would be shocked to hear. Do you think people on the street are thinking about the Christ of Christmas as being the mighty God. I, I think that they're, that's very far from their mind. The prophet, the prophet attributes to this child a title that is blasphemy if he is only a human child. If Jesus is only, uh, if, if, uh, Jesus is only human, this title is heresy. If Jesus is not God, then we are idolaters for worshiping him and for praying to him. If Jesus is not God, then we would be better off being like the Muslims. You know what the Muslims say? They say there's no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. They make a sharp distinction between God and between the prophet. But that's not what we're doing when we're talking about our Lord Jesus Christ. We are saying that he is the mighty God. You know, if Jesus is not God, then he deserved everything that happened to him on the cross. He was charged with blasphemy. And if he wasn't God, then he should have been killed for blasphemy. If Jesus is only flesh and blood, then our hope is in vain and our worship is sacrilege. You know, Paul talks about something along these lines in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he says this. He says, if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, 
we are of all people most to be pitied. And we can say both those very same things about the situation if Christ is not God, that we've misrepresented God, and that we truly have no hope. But the Bible tells us that the greatest folly in all of this world is to deny the eternal divine nature of Jesus and to deny that He is God, very God of very God. It is the greatest folly. You can imagine that this title uh, from among the four titles of Isaiah 9, 6 has caused the most controversy and debate over the centuries. The Jews certainly denied this interpretation, this understanding of Isaiah 9, 6. And unbelieving Bible scholars and theologians try to find alternative ways to translate these wor words or ways to uh, explain uh, them in some other way than in, their, uh, than in the way of their obvious meaning. The problem is this. The term El in the Hebrew Old Testament is always, always, always used of God. It means God. This term is reserved for God and for God alone. There is no honest way to deny the fact that Isaiah is saying that this child that is being born is God. Now why does Isaiah say this and how does he know this? Did he just make, make that up? Well, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 says, Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, Peter wrote this, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. These scriptures tell us that God, by his Holy Spirit, revealed this to Isaiah and directed him to write these words down. In fact, it is the Spirit of Christ that is explaining the Christ to us. And how wonderful is that? This child is God who has come and clothed himself with human flesh as a baby. This is an event without parallel in all of human history. Who besides God himself can do what this child will do? He will rule all things in all the fullness of power and strength. He will govern and rule with righteousness and justice in an everlasting kingdom of peace. Who could ever do that unless it would be God himself? Who else but a mighty Messiah could lead the true Israel of God to victory in this hostile world? We who have great and mighty enemies need a mighty God on our behalf. Listen to just a few verses here. Hebrews 6.12, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this, present, of this present age, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. John 16.33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 
1 John 5, verses 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? 1 John 3, 8. The reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Revelation 17, 14. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. He is the mighty God, El Gabor. He shall be called mighty God. What does that mean for us? Well, it means that we must learn not to trust our own strength and might and ability, but to trust this mighty God. We talked about it just last week when we were thinking about the doxology in the Lord's Prayer. Yours is the power, is what we pray. Yours is the power because you are the mighty God. I would suggest to you that when we, distru- when we distrust our own might, that is when we are mighty in the Lord. Do you know this mighty God who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe in him? Do you ask him to fight the battles against your enemies that you are not able to fight on your own? Do you cast all your cares on this mighty one? May God give us grace to trust this child, this wonderful counselor, and this mighty God. Let's close with the word of prayer.